I did this interview with Kevin Hines years ago now. Seriously, it was before the pandemic. Kevin, in case you don't know, is a suicide prevention activist who speaks to school and church groups across the United States. He has his own YouTube channel and website, and he has this infectious energy that helps him connect with people who are in a tough place like he was when he was a teenager. He's kind of a celebrity in suicide prevention, so when he consented to do an interview with me, I was like, whoa, this is a big deal. The problem is that I didn't really have good access to a studio at the time, and I hadn't figured out how to do it at home. But a friend of mine who works in radio allowed me to come to her station and do this interview in a professional studio, so huge thank you to her. But the morning of the interview, his manager reached out and told me that Kevin was actually having a rough mental health day. And I have to say, for someone having a rough mental health day, he gave me a fantastic interview. And honestly, if you're in a tough spot right now yourself, if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts or feelings, Kevin has some really great things to say to you specifically. So here he is, Kevin Hines. Hello. Hey, is this Kevin? Yes, hi. Just to start off, how about if it's okay if I can have you tell me your story? I mean, uh, and just back up a little bit to uh, wherever it starts. Is that okay? All right. Um, so I was, my name is Kevin Hines, and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, type 1 with psychotic features at the age of 17 and a half. Um, and I wasn't prepared for this diagnosis, and I didn't want anything to do with having a mental illness. I didn't want to be labeled mentally ill. I, I hated the idea of it. I really wanted to be the kid who had just come off a WCAL wrestling championship. The football team had just gone to state. And everything was falling apart mentally for me. My brain was being taxed, and and I was going through what I, I call brain pain. Um, I, I had my first severe symptom of the disease that both my biological parents had before me as an adoptive. Um, they had both been diagnosed in their day with manic depression. And they coped with their manic depression with drugs and alcohol. So I turned 17, and I developed the same disease they had. And I, I'm haphazardly trying to fight the disease, but while while in denial of it at the same time. So I'm doing things like binge drinking until blackout a handful of times on psychotropic medication, which could have been very dangerous for me. But I wasn't trying to to... To, to get higher feel the buzz, I was trying to stop the voices I was hearing in my head. I had begun to have auditory and visual hallucinations on a regular basis. I had had them uh, in fourth grade, but I never told anybody. Uh, and they came back full force at 17. And I'll never forget being on the stage at Archbishop Reardon High School, school I went to, the school my father went to, uh, playing a character in a, in, a, in a theater show called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. I was playing a character called Gatch. And I looked out in this crowd of 1,200 people, and there was not one seat open. And I began to become extremely paranoid. I began to believe that every single one of the 1,200-person audience was at any moment going to rush the stage and end my life. It was terrifying. So, like, paranoia? And uh, and like you say, I mean, it, it sort of brought some alcohol abuse with it, and that probably didn't help, right? No, it didn't, didn't help. And I was... Uh, the, the alcohol use happened before that but yeah it was it wasn't helping at all it was putting myself in a dangerous position mentally and emotionally um and when i when i left that theater that night i had to, i had to leave mid mid play so they I, they had to have the the director go on and 
play the rest of my role. Um, I they ended up dedicating the next few days shows to me and my family, um, and I ended up going to see my first psychiatrist. It was a situation where, um, for the first two years of living with the disease, I I was in serious denial of it, and I wasn't getting better. Uh, throughout this time, from 17 to 19 years of age, it was just this really, really rocky road where I would skyrocket into manic euphoric natural highs and I'd come crashing down into this abyss of depression. You know, it was, it was this place where I believed I was um, all alone when, in fact, I was surrounded by people who loved me, but I just couldn't see it. I always say I couldn't see the forest through the trees. Um, and at 19, my brain broke. I, I, I was so depressed, so suicidal, that I wrote that note to my family and my friends and my girlfriend at the time, basically telling them I loved them saying sorry and asking for their forgiveness. I put that in my shoulder bag and eventually that day made my way to the Golden Gate Bridge where I would attempt to take my life and become the 26th of 39 individuals who have survived the jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, which is only 1%. So 99% of those who have attempted off the Golden Gate Bridge um, never ever get to tell their stories again. They're gone. And I got to survive that day. In that survival... It was a few miraculous things that came into play to save my life. Uh, a woman driving by in a red car saw me go over the rail and called her friend in the United States Coast Guard on her car phone. Um, and the only reason the Coast Guard got to my position in the water before I'd set in hypothermia was because that woman made that phone call in a timely manner, which she did. In the water, as I flailed to stay afloat, I couldn't stay above water. I kept going down. And I thought I was going to drown. And something began to circle beneath me, bumping me up. And no longer was I wading in the water trying to swim in it. I was being kept afloat by this creature. And, of course, the entire time I think it's a shark and I'm freaking out, it turned out to be a sea lion uh, coming to my aid. Uh, and if you look around the world in the history of mankind, um, animals have come to the aid of humans all over the world in dire situations where it's a life-or-death situation. And, and, uh, and, and there's been instances of porpoises or even sharks, uh, even bears, and uh, even some large cats coming to the aid of human beings and keeping them safe in a, in a, in a situation of extreme danger. Um, and Yeah, I hadn't heard that part of your story. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 uh, the reason I found out was because uh, I was on a television program a year later on ABC News promoting a suicide prevention campaign in San Francisco. And I mentioned on the show, I thought there was a shark beneath me in the water. And people wrote in the show from all over the world when it went viral online. And one man's letter stuck out above all the rest. His name was Morgan McWord. He was from Las Vegas. And he wrote in, he said, Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. Until this day, no one would tell me whether you lived or died. It's haunted me until now, by the way. There was no shark, like you mentioned, you thought there wasn't a show, but there was a sea lion. And the people above looking down believed it to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. Subsequently, an investigative journalist would do a, a, an investigation in this matter and go to the Coast Guard offices where she would find out that three people that were there that day, besides Morgan McWard, corroborated the same story. Wow. Um, yeah. The best part of this piece of the story is that when I recovered physically, my back injuries, 
I had a 10 and a half hour back surgery to replace my shattered vertebrae with metal. Um, when I recovered physically, um, did you go back there or? Yeah, I ended up going back there. Uh, and, uh, with my father, he insisted we go back and drop a flower over where I jumped and I dropped the flower and two feet to the right after the flower rippled in the water, two feet to the right popped up a sea lion. And it was arguably the most beautiful moment I've ever spent with my dad besides him being the best man at my wedding. That's wild. You've, and you've talked in your story about, um, you know, the experience of falling from the bridge and, and, uh, you know, like say, talk to me just a little bit about what, uh, what changed in your in your mind in that experience? Like, what happened? What was what was going through your head as you, you know, right before versus when you actually fell? Before, I was thinking that this was the only answer, that I had to die. I never wanted to take my life. I believed I had to. But after my hands left the rail, all I wanted to do was reach back with an instant regret for my actions and the 100% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake in my life and it was too late. And, um, you know, like I said, for 99% of those who've done this, it's been too late. Uh, so I'm very lucky to be anywhere, very lucky to be talking to you, very lucky to exist, period. Very blessed. And, and so after my attempt, it would be a long and arduous road to get to today. And I still have a great deal of hardship with my diagnosis. I still have all the symptoms I've ever had of mania, depression, hallucinations, auditory and visual, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, but I'm able to manage them in a way that I can be successful through hard work, dedication, and diligence with my recommended treatment plan. And you can find all of that at youtube.com slash Kevin Hines on the playlist, The Art of Wellness, the detailed 12-video, 10-step guide to better brain health. And people are saying from all over the world as far as Japan, Africa, Peru, and China and all throughout America that if following this plan for six to nine months, they see a dramatic improvement in their mental health. So we, uh, we always want to promote something that is free, available to people, and a real tangible piece of material that people can use to stabilize mentally and not just give them a bunch of rhetoric and tell them just a story without giving them hope. Right. You've got to leave them with something to take home and something to utilize to better their own brain health. So tell me something. I mean, do you still deal with suicidality like you say you still deal with the the symptoms of uh, of bipolar disorder that you've you've had for all these years how about suicidality is that something that still comes up yeah i have regular thoughts of suicide i just know how to handle them because every time i'm suicidal today my first response is to ask for help um i don't let um i don't let the suicidal ideations turn to planning I make sure that I ask for help immediately from anyone in front of me, whether it's someone who knows and loves me or someone I don't know from Adam. Um, I'm always willing to ask that help. And that's, that's my biggest strength in this arena is that, that I'm self-aware enough to recognize that I have true value and that I am worthy to survive and that suicide does not have to be the answer to my problems. In that, in that regard, I'll never, I'll never die that way. I'll think about it, but I'll always say I need help now to whoever's in front of me. And what that looks like is when I say that, um, I'll let them know if it's an acute situation where I'm in danger of harming myself or if it's just a situation where I need someone to talk to for uh, a few minutes to get back to grounding myself and, and get back to a safe place. That's great. Do you, um, 
when you look at what's going on with suicide in the United States right now, I mean, what do you think, uh, you know, like I say, we, we see, <coughs> excuse me, we see situations where the uh, rate is sometimes increasing and, uh, and what do you think is going on? I mean, you've met all these people, you've toured the country, you've uh, spoken in all these situations. What do you think is going on and, and, and what needs to change? I think we've lost something very crucial in our society. I think it's a societal problem. We've lost um, our community. We've lost a communal society where one human protects another human or helps another human who's in pain. We've turned into a society that is so so focused uh, internally on themselves. We've turned into a society... um, filled with narcissistic tendencies where technology rules the day instead of human one-on-one personal connection. I think that we need to find balance between our technologies and our human connection. And I think we've lost that terribly. Um, I think technology does great things. It offers us great advances in the world. It, it, it does wonders for us in certain arenas. But in other arenas, it's become dangerous and dark and, and places where People are utilizing it for horrible things or to promote their activities that are a danger to other human beings and not something that kids should be watching. For example, when you see uh, a video from the UK where uh, a guy runs up behind an unexpected bystander, punches them in the back of the head, drops that video on YouTube, and it gets a million views or more, that's a morbid societal woe that we live in that is disgusting and deplorable um, and, uh, and unacceptable. Where we should be coming together and joining forces for good, we are able to drop anything online and get that kind of viral uh, acceptance from society, which is just a plague on our ability to grow. I, I think that I appreciate the great parts of technology, but I do wish that there would be some fail-safes for people in pain. For example, Cyberbullying is 60% more dangerous for people who are suicidal than, than regular bullying. And these kids who are riding online for people to kill themselves in droves have no consequence of their actions when that individual goes and takes their life or attempts. And that is wrong. Um, they're, in essence, becoming a mob mentality that is leading to people's thoughts and attempts of suicide, sometimes death. Um, and it's something that we need to address today in a big way. And that's, you know, when, uh, when we address that, we have to take into account some consequences for those actions um, or else people won't stop doing it. Um, to be a part of the mob mentality of someone taking their life and then taking and having, you know, some kind of adulation after after doing something like that is sickening to me, but it happens all over the world. So I think we need to take responsibility for these social medias that allow these, this mob mentality to run free on their platforms and be able to cut them off at the past and not allow them to be, to see the the light of day. Uh, The only thing we should be putting on social medias, especially for these young people on them is positive reinforcement. And it should be filled with hope and drive them to do good in the world, not the other way around. So when you're at like a speaking engagement and you have somebody 
Because I'm sure this has happened to you where you have someone who comes up to you after and says, hey, I'm dealing with this right now and, and I'm struggling with this right now. What, what do you say to them? I let them know that today is not tomorrow. And just because you're going through hell today, it doesn't mean you don't get to have that beautiful tomorrow, but you have to be here to get there in the first place. And I let them know all the things I would have missed had I died with my hands. And that really seems to click. When you say, you know, I would never have met the love of my life and, and, and married my wife, Margaret, or I would never have had the best uh, emotional support dog in the world, or I would never have had my father be the best man at my wedding, or I would never have um, watched my two, God, my goddaughter and my godson be born right in front of me and be a huge part of their life today, um, a pivotal part in their life and their well-being. Um, when you let them know that their life holds more purpose than to die with their hands in a way that is real, real, honest, and true, and gives you a prime example of someone who's already gone through it and survived and found recovery, they see those possibilities. They, they, they open their eyes and they see the forest and the trees, and they see that, you know, oh, I can, I can actually live a good life someday and have a balance and have hope in my heart. Um, and that, that, I think, really is the, the most important thing is, is that for them to have hope, they have to have a purpose. And then for them to find that purpose, they have to search for it um, uh, actively uh, inside of their mental pain so they can survive it. That's great. Do you, uh, you know, do you ever worry about, uh, like say for you, it took kind of this dramatic, really painful experience to, to really put things in perspective, right? To where you were able to look at it and say, I, I can't go down that road anymore. And, uh, or, or, you know, I have to find a better way to deal with the, you know, these thoughts and feelings. Do you ever worry that it takes that for people or, or like, what do you think it takes to, I mean, people shouldn't well, have I, to jump from the bridge, well, right? The, that's the whole reason I go and speak is because I want them to recognize that they don't have to learn the hard way like I did. As a matter of fact, I'm begging them not to learn the hard way like I did, never to silence their pain. And that seems to resonate. We just had a, a, a we just had a report come in um, of, of these events that we did um, all throughout Vermilion County in Danville, Illinois, on October 3rd this year. Um, I spoke there to the Danville Area Community College. Uh, I spoke there to the high school students from eight of the county schools in the school district, and I spoke later after that to the Second Church of Christ at a community event, did two radio shows. We reached over 4,000 people that day, um, and one of the first quotes that came in was from one of the attendees was, I was considering suicide today before the event. Listening to Kevin made all the difference after losing someone I loved to suicide. I met Kevin afterwards. He made me promise to be here tomorrow. And then when you dive deeper into the numbers, you realize that um, when, when the question was asked in the survey they did, you know, uh, did Kevin's presentation help you better understand the seriousness of mental health? For example, 99% of the attendees felt that it did. Uh, and then the question next from there was, did you feel better equipped to understand and help a family member or friend who's struggling with mental illness? 98% said yes. Are you more likely to seek counseling or mental health services based on what you heard from Kevin? 91% said yes. And do you plan to make actual tangible changes on your life based on what you heard from Kevin? 93% said yes. And then there's a plethora of quotes from all these uh, community members and kids at the high schools about how this talk changed their life. Um, and what, what we know uh, today out of a study that was done prior to this, there's a white paper done on the efficacy of my presentation uh, and the, the, the learning points that they gleaned from that study were that I'm the only lived experience story 
that is quantitatively and qualitatively proven to save lives. Um, it's the first study of its kind, um, but, uh, but we were able to look at all the data from surveys like this two years ago and see what the response was. And very similar to what I just read to you. Um, you know, I'm not quoting or saying that I saved lives. I'm saying that that's what they're saying. And they're writing it in droves in the videos I make and the, in the, in the presentations I give. Um, if we can build a network of individuals, because I'm not, this is not just my story. This is the every human story. We all go into issues. We all have problems. We all have struggles. A lot of us have mental illnesses. And if we can be honest about our pain and share it in a way that promotes health and happiness and hope um, and recovery, which is the really big piece of it, is that if someone can recognize that you can recover from these kinds of pains, they can realize their true value and they can stay here in spite of the pain. And I think that's the big message is that you're not alone. You can defeat this pain one day at a time. If, if it's a long-term issue, you just keep on trucking. And the idea of our motto, be here tomorrow, is effervescent and clear. You know, for some people who have lived with chronic thoughts of suicide like myself, being here tomorrow and every day after that is just a, is just a one day at a time process. Um, I just have to get to tomorrow uh, one more 24-hour period. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, it's not by any means an easy life to live, but it's not impossible. And, I, I, and, and I'm living proof of that recovery. No, that's great. That's, I'm glad to hear you got that data. And that's kind of the, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the idea behind this podcast is that uh, talking to people who have lived experiences, um, you know, protective, that it can help people to avoid making those same decisions and, and finding people who've dealt with those issues and, and gotten past them uh, that, you know, that can help people. So that's, uh, yeah, and we know, that's great. We know, we know that uh, gratitude is one of the greatest protective factors against suicidal thinking, gratitude even inside the pain you're experiencing, and uh, resilience is a tool you can develop from that gratitude of that pain. So there's two factors there that are two of the biggest protective issues in, in suicide prevention, gratitude and resilience. And you can build those two um, uh, parts of your life and make them strong. You can, you can, you can continue. You can keep going. What, what do you do to build gratitude? I, I'm just curious. I mean, what uh, for you personally? You, how you, do you? you, you, you it's, not about, it's more about practicing it. Daily affirmations about being thankful for everyone in your life and everything in your life, even the hard times. The hard times are what build us. The hard times are what build us from the ground up, brick by brick. And if you can hold gratitude and practice gratitude inside of pain, I believe you can always survive it. Um, I, I know this from personal experience. Uh, and once you build that gratitude inside of that pain, you can be resilient throughout it. Um, and that's, that, that, that means that you can always remain here. Um, it's not easy. It's not simple. But it's a process that works for me and works for a lot of people. You're awesome, Kevin. I really appreciate you taking time, sure. man. I mean, that's Thanks, your, your story. Just like I say, I, I love hearing it. I love, uh, I love hearing about you, and I love hearing about your your life and the things you're doing. I mean, you're just amazing. And so, I just want you to know. I mean, I appreciate it, and I hope we get to. I hope we see you out here in Utah sometime. Honestly, it'd be great to have. Uh, yeah, you know, we've got a problem here where suicide's rising even faster than it is in the rest of the U.S. And uh, it'd be great to have you out here sometime. Well, as soon as I get out there, I will. I, I'd love to as well. Th thank you so much for, for, for 
having me on your platform. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. So thanks and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>